hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now let's fire up the time machine. It's Alexandria, coastal Egypt in 1733. The glittering Mediterranean spreads before you, seagulls arcing overhead. All is lightness and grace, except for you. You stand on the dock, bulked out and top-heavy. If you were to trip and fall, getting up, well, you might not be able to. And no wonder, you're clad in thick leather head to toe, in weighted shoes, with what feels like a copper cauldron upended on your head. So you walk carefully, so carefully, holding your leather breathing hose in one hand and gazing straight ahead to the edge of the dock, which is the launching point for your adventure beneath the waves. You hold your breath as you slip into the water, which makes you laugh, because the whole point is that you can breathe underwater. This is a world away from the freedivers who brought the limits of their terrestrial bodies with them into the sea. But instincts designed to keep you alive die hard. You take that magical first breath as you drift to the seabed floor. The weight of your equipment, gone. Like that. And it's not just because the buoyancy of the water takes the weight. It's the wonders you're seeing face to face for the first time. Even through the tiny glass portals of your helmet, it's awe-inspiring. You walk along the sandy floor, ribbed by ocean currents and exploding with colorful corals and seaweed. Brilliant schools of fish pass so close you can touch them. A stingray skitters as you step too close, and it zooms off, reminding you that you're here to work. You quickly gather enough sea sponges to bring more income than you've seen in one place before. And not a moment too soon. You feel a tug from the topside. It's time. With one last look around, you tug in response and begin the reascent to your world. But you'll be back, and not just for the economic rewards. You'll be back again and again to feel the rush of breathing out of your element, underwater, totally alive. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, overtime, and across cultures. How's everyone doing this week? I'm not gonna lie, the UK's recent announcement of extensions to the current lockdown has got me a little bit down. But of course, my inconvenience is literally nothing compared to the loss of life and quality of life that's devastated so many around the world. And it's encouraging to see infections and death rates starting to level a little bit. And, of course, vaccines on the horizon. So there's light at the end of this COVID tunnel, maybe at last. 
in that spirit, thank goodness for today's topic, which promises pure escapist adventure. Today, we're going to swim with some of the earliest and most intrepid explorers the world's ever known. I'm talking about the brave souls who plunged to the ocean floors, beginning thousands of years ago as free divers, collecting sponges, pearls, and the stuff to make princely dyes which could be found nowhere else on the planet. Now, the human desire to reach the deep, for whatever reason, has never waned. But fortunately, the technology to make underwater activities easier and safer has evolved to the point today that pretty much anyone can acquire the skills to do it, whether for work or pleasure. So, take a deep breath and join me in following maritime archaeologist Ziad Morsi down this long, watery path of discovery. Ziad is a maritime ethnographer and archaeologist whose research focuses on riverine boat building traditions on the Nile in Egypt. He loves diving, engaging the public with archaeology, and telling the stories of ancient people. He has worked at the Alexandria Center for Maritime Archaeology and Underwater Cultural Heritage and has participated in various underwater archaeological projects and 3D documentations of cultural heritage sites. Ziad earned a BA in Greco-Roman archaeology and a master's in maritime archaeology, both at Alexandria University. And he is a PhD candidate in maritime archaeology at the University of Southampton. So clearly, he is just the guy to discuss our topic today, which is scuba diving through the ages, or I should say sort of through some recent centuries. Is that right, Ziad? Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much for joining us. You bring a myriad of insights from all your different hats you wear that intersect with the, the work of scuba and history. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be here today. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to just fess up here. I'm a fraidy cat when it comes to diving. I tried it and it was honestly, I mean, it's something... It was so bad, I still have nightmares about it. So maybe you can convince me what I, you know, it's actually this wonderful, peaceful thing, which I've heard it is for those who are maybe not quite so type A. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is. It is really interesting activity to do. I've, to tell you the truth, I when I was a kid, I was afraid of the water. I, I've, I've run away from the sea, although I've, gro um, I've grown up in a coastal city in Alexandria, Egypt but I didn't like the sea at all. But at one day, I decided to just go for a, a dive, like on, uh, holding my breath and just do it. And since then, I became fascinated with the underwater world. And then when I got the opportunity, I started diving. And actually, it's 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 really wonderful thing to do. Yeah, you know what? I'm good with my snorkel. <laughs> as, long, as, as long as I can put my face right about whenever I want to, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that, it is true that sometimes it's not it's not for everyone. It's it's just depends on the person. What I'd love to do next is try to kind of be in the flippers of of a scuba diver, and you can either have it be somebody hypothetical or a particular person in a particular time or place, but however you'd like best to kind of plunge our listeners into the experience. I'm sorry, I love puns. <laughs> it's okay. So we can actually use um, a, a 
hypothetical person who is in the Eastern Mediterranean some, sometime around the second half of the 18th century. And he used to be a fisherman. And then one day he decided to go on his boat with his mate. And then uh, they decided to, to try this new uh, diving equipment where he puts on a copper helmet that is fixed to a, a hose and it's fixed to a, some kind of uh, a pump, an air pump that was uh, manually wind by his uh, colleague on the, on the boat. And then he decides to go down deeper to extract some sponge, natural sponge, uh, around maybe the islands of uh, the Greek islands uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Oh, he sounds like he has a death wish. Let's get to know yes. him better. Yeah, so, so basically, going underwater, it's not very unnatural for us. So, because we, in the first nine months of our existence, we would be inside as some kind of a, um, a water sub, a substance in, in our mom's bellies. Uh, so we, at the beginning, we would use to not to breathe uh, air as we do now, uh, but once we are born, we start um, uh, gasping for air and our lungs starts working. But if you um, have a, a small child uh, who's an, an infant, and then you put him or her in, in the water, uh, the, their instinct will tell them to hold their breath. Um, and this is oh, maybe... so interesting. Yeah, and this is maybe how human beings came to uh, the idea of diving. And then uh, it's just um, knowing the means and having the, the right technology to do this kind of work. And our guy who used to live in the end of or the second half of the 18th century have heard these rumors about these uh, massive diving bells that other people were using somewhere in Europe, especially in Western Europe, in England, uh, to salvage uh, uh, shipwrecks uh, from underwater uh, sites. Um, diving bells. I, yes. Is that some sort of superstructure that would go around the dive? It is. So basically, it is a, a kind of a box, um, either uh, either a wooden box or a metal one, and then it was it was fitted underwater or ballasted underwater to stay upright and hold a certain amount of air from the surface uh, for divers, and then they would climb up through the vent uh, from underwater, take deep breaths. And then they go out, do some kind of work, either heavy lifting something or uh, cleaning uh, the underside of a hull of a boat. And then they return again, take another breath, have a short break, and then they, off they go again. So this, is, this was uh, earlier than the 18th century. Uh, and it has been used in so many uh, salvage expeditions, uh, like, for example, the Vasa ship or the, the Vasa shipwreck in Sweden, which was the flag uh, ship in Sweden in the 16, 1600s. 
and it was sunk in on its maiden voyage. Yeah, it never the, made it out 60s. of the harbor. Yeah, exactly. It? Oh, that's and an then, amazing story and a beautiful. Yeah. it's a beautiful wreck. I mean, it it's actually it's quite unwrecked. I mean, I guess it didn't get far enough to get very badly damaged. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah. So, so basically, the the the, the example of the Vasa, the Vasa, the. Uh, was one of the early use of the diving bells where um, uh, the king had contracted a company to go and salvage some of the valuable cannons from the, from the shipwreck. And actually, they managed to salvage about 20 cannons from the underwater using the same methodology that I've uh, brief uh, previously described. Um, and then it wasn't until the 18th century that people used the single uh, helmet, that uh, self-contained air device, uh, kind of a self-contained air device. But again, it's lacking uh, the independency. So you would have to be attached to a pump somewhere on the surface, either at the shore or on a boat. I actually really appreciate that broader context you just gave us for um, these diving bells. And obviously this gentleman in the Mediterranean in the second half of the 18th century is emboldened to try this new technology. So let's just try to go into his head and, and start thinking about what that would have been like. So, you know, what's he worried about? So I think what he was worrying about that fish are not fishing activity is being overpopulated maybe back in back then uh, maybe it was a, a little bit industrialized and he's a one-man show or he and his friend uh, are two-man shows so he would like to go and try this invention and uh, try to make his living from selling these um, these natural sponges so he would go down uh, underwater um, with the help of, of his friend uh, who is manning the pump uh, up on the, on the boat. And uh, he would use this to get access to the uh, sponge that are deeply um, in and around the Greek islands. And it's, it's a very famous activity back then. Uh, around the Greek islands and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey also. Yeah, and in fact, um, what you're reminding me of is, I mean, I have read about free divers in the ancient past who would basically hold their breath and go down um, tens of meters to collect things like sponges, like shells that produced special dyes that couldn't be made any other way, mother of pearl, um, so this is very interesting. So that this might have been a um, a real um, a heritage trade, so to speak, in this area, but which hadn't been pursued in that way in a long time. Yeah, that's that's actually true. So actually, the the, the earliest possible evidence about uh, diving or free diving comes from maybe ancient Greeks and ancient Egypt also, because and it's all substantial. Um, evidence. So we only find this kind of either a shell that doesn't exist in near the shore, so people would have to, to do some kind of deep diving to get it, or some kind of a fish uh, bone 
uh, or remains of a fish or birds, as, as you mentioned, that are not uh, easily accessible from the shore. So uh, yes, uh, free diving was the one of the very ancient uh, jobs, maybe not jobs, but uh, people in the ancient times were uh, hunters, ga gatherers. So they would go and gather some uh, very interesting stuff from underwater. I mean, I mean, I sort of I appreciate that our <laughs> hypothetical diver um, has been prompted to attempt this dive with this new equipment from concerns about his livelihood. But I, I'm sorry, I'm just hearkening back to my own fears, maybe. But I, <laughs> I wanna, I wanna know what you think he's worried about and thinking about as he's standing on the boat with his head in this copper contraption, looking down. Well, if if it, if he was me at back then, I would be very intrigued to know this uh, the sensation of walking on the sea bottom. Um, so people would have a lot of dreams normally uh, about either flying or floating in the middle of the water. So again, it, it is kind of um, achieving one of the uh, of the oldest dreams of men uh, conquering the underwater world so he would actually think that he is one of the pioneers uh, of his time going to uh, a place that no other man have went before maybe few have went before but not in his village maybe or not around his island so he would be excited and uh, most probably worried about his uh, wife and kids waiting for him at home? Would he be facing monsters that he have heard about in the past? Uh, or the, all the, the folklore uh, tells and stories about the sea monsters um, and uh, the, the, the things that could harm him or eat him while he's um, uh, fishing for, for sponge or extracting sponge? Yeah, well... What else is he wearing at this point? At this point, he might have been wearing some kind of a leather uh, garment, uh, a, a full suit of, made of leather uh, that keeps him uh, protected from the cold of the water or the, the temperature, the water temperature. Gloves and, of course, um, a shoe uh, that is having some kind of a heavy shoe Back then, it was a, a copper shoe, so it keeps him uh, underwater on the sea on the seabed. It would keep him underwater and stable, and he, then he can walk on the sea bottom uh, as he pleases. And so, what is it about copper? Why copper for the helmet and the shoes, and not a different metal? Do we know? Well, actually, copper is really good because it doesn't uh, it doesn't rust away. Uh, like other metal, and it's heavy enough, its weight could be hauled by the diver. Uh, so, for example, if you made a helmet out of lead, it would be too heavy to be carried. And if you made a helmet out of iron, it would be rusting away um, in, an, in a matter of months because of the seawater, the chemical reaction between iron and water. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Certainly in terms of um, repeat usage, right? If yeah. hopefully this, this test dive goes well. So I, and I'm sorry, I, I loved the way you were talking earlier. You know, I, I asked you, he's looking down and what's he mm. thinking about? And of course, from my perspective of, you know, the glass half full, I have to go <laughs> diving under the water and breathe under there. I'm thinking, <gasps> and you're just, oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to be a, a, a pioneer. He's going to live his dream. <laughs> you know, so Honestly, he's got to be slightly nervous that his friend is going to mess up, that he's going to get a kink in the wire or something. Help me out here. But yeah, there's some yeah. nightmare scenarios that, <laughs> that he could be having. Well, 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 a lot of things could happen to him. Uh, back in the back in the 1700s, uh, nobody know, knew about uh, uh, physiology or human physiology and how the human uh, body would react to uh, to pressure. Actually, yeah, right, because this is going to let you be down a lot longer than a free diver could stay. Exactly. So back then, he would be an, a victim of his ignorance. Uh, so he wouldn't know about these kind of uh, of of diving disease that was around. Uh, he would know that some people would have died during diving, but uh, he would think that he would be better than them. Uh, <laughs> of uh, course, he would. Course. He's a brave man. Yeah, to be to be specimen. brave enough. <laughs> yeah, to be brave enough to put on this helmet and go into the depths of of the of the mediterranean sea that's that that needs a, a special person yeah it sure would and so maybe uh you mentioned some of these these diseases that come out of diving and and they may not have known what they were but i i think is it called the bends is one thing that 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 happens if you surface yeah. too fast or yeah. yeah could you tell us a little bit about that for for listeners who may not be familiar one of the uh, very famous diving disease and it's it's especially with the scuba diving so it's with the open circuit diving uh, apparatuses so if you go down um, really deep in the water and you are breathing some kind of a uh, compressed air uh, then um, this compressed air uh, includes uh, uh, nitrogen, uh, which then, if you climb up really fast, the nitrogen becomes uh, becomes um, um, from goes from liquid in the blood to uh, a bubble in the bloodstream, and then it it causes a stroke some kind of a stroke either in uh, one of the limbs or one of the joints or within the lungs so this is this is a very serious illness yeah, you, that you don't nobody knew yeah, yeah no yeah no no, no. <laughs> luckily our fellow doesn't know anything about that we're yeah. gonna actually hope he's not planning to stay too long um that he yeah. might have contracted such a thing or so deep but but maybe we can talk a little bit about that how how deep and how long could somebody in one of these early 18th century suits realistically survive? So the, 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 they would go for maybe um, around an hour, 45 minutes, and they can go um, up to about 18 to 20 meters. Uh, That's like, deep. 
yeah that's deep but that's that's like the limit uh because beyond that it's 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 going to get really cold for them and also they would need some kind of a bigger com compressors that uh, that can push the air down all the way down to the helmet can you explain to us a little bit about you know what would the tube have been made out of and how did the air make its way all the way down that tube yeah so so, so it's the same kind of uh, um, principle of the modern uh, diving equipment that we use today uh, so basically the the hose would be some kind back then uh, some kind of a leather hose uh, that is sealed and uh, it's a watertight uh, hose uh, so it doesn't allow water bubbles to go uh, out of it and then it is um, connected to a, some kind of a contraption or a device uh, which pumps air uh, by the use the use of a, a kind of a winding wheel and um, two pistons like in the in the modern compressors so these two pistons move uh, air take the air inside the device and then it pump it down through the hose so it was a constant um, kind of uh, airflow from the machine or from the compressor uh, on the boat or uh, on the shore uh, all the way down to the diver so this this was a, a, an operation of trust <laughs> Yeah, and not only that, uh, uh, if, if the hose was longer, so the, uh, the probability of tangling and uh, also the hose would bend uh, becomes more, uh, more effective. So, so it is another inherited danger of uh, diving deeper or uh, for longer period underwater. Where and by whom was this kind of equipment developed? Do we know? somebody would start developing something um, uh, somewhere in Europe or in America and then other people would copy it instantly and try to modify it. Um, Just like the space uh, race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> some much kind later, of, obviously, but... Yeah, so, so, so there is... A, and it's, it, 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 it's not just one person who uh, did this kind of uh, diving gear, but it's uh, the work of... Uh, a lot of different generations, uh, all the way from uh, back from the early uh, 1300s or 1400s, uh, all the way to um, uh, 1710, uh, when um, uh, two English inventors developed uh, these kind of diving suits. So in the early 18th century, we've got people, entrepreneurs of their own sort, developing these suits for diving. Mm -hmm. And would our hypothetical Mediterranean gentleman be the typical consumer for these? Or were there workplaces, employers that sort of um, emerged and, you know, which would be driving the interest of people in learning to master this technology so that they could perform that kind of work? Yeah, so basically the, the, the early diving work would be um, um, the maintenance of, uh, of the armada or, or the, the battleships uh, 
uh, of France uh, okay. or England. Okay. So mil military employers. It would be um, some kind of a military employers who are employed by the uh, uh, the shipyard or the docks, the the, the, the wet docks, uh, where uh, ships are being sent uh, for uh, inspection, uh, cleaning of the hull or uh, doing some repairs or modifications on the boat and uh, that would be around the the early 19th century so or mid of the 19th century and then you would find a, a big uh, state uh, driven uh, uh, need for the scuba diver or for the divers in general uh, to be employed in this kind of ventures of uh, either fixing um, or maintaining the Royal Navy uh, uh, ships or salvaging actually some of the shipwrecks that uh, are happening all the time due to the war and the uh, invasions and stuff that was happening a lot in the, uh, in the 19th century, in, especially in Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean too. Oh yeah, so interesting. So it sounds like there was some kind of shift between the 18th century where we began with our hypothetical gentleman who was a real pioneer and the emergence of an actual industry that was pinned at least largely in the ability to employ individuals who could dive and could salvage wrecks, could maintain boats at, at harbor, at anchor and, and such. Yes, yeah. Any technological differences that might have emerged over that roughly century time period? And also tell us if the sort of experience of a diver working for the European military in the 19th century might have had a little bit of a different kind of day than an earlier diver who was just going to experiment with his friend out in the deck of his boat. As for the, the diving suit itself, it would have been uh, completely changed by, by that time. Um, so uh, it would be safer uh, for the diver, um, uh, made of uh, more durable, uh, material it's it's again the same leather and copper it's the same technique the same old style but again it have been modified been much safer for uh, the divers and also allow them to go into deeper water and stay for longer underwater uh, so it was all technical uh, evolutions and also the the main evolution was the the use of uh, machinery for the for the compressors so what what's fascinating is that it sounds like the technologies actually didn't change much but the the implementation of them became more mechanized over time yes uh, so basically the, the, they become this um, in the 19th century they become this main two divisions or investigations uh, around diving. One is one was the uh, technological, uh, uh, and people were investing in developing these new uh, uh, 
techniques or technologies of diving and other people starting looking at the science of the, of the diving. So people were more aware about diving accidents and how uh, uh, pressure, water pressure affects uh, the human body. And uh, also studies have uh, um, emerged about uh, what is the safe limit for uh, compressed air diving. So all of this happened um, uh, around the, uh, the 19th century, which ushered the way for the, uh, the scuba diving as we know today in the early 20th century. Is it possible to imagine uh, kind of a day in the life of, of one of these divers working in the 19th century for one of the European military organizations? Yeah, um, so this guy would be uh, like any kind of uh, factory worker uh, back in the day who is um, physically fit, uh, who likes the water, especially when you are in England and you cannot see anything underwater. <laughs> so you really have to be comfortable uh, in the water. Um, that is not the case in the Mediterranean where you can see uh, for like five to 10 meters around you. But in the UK, the water is murky, um, they, uh, it's really cold. And also there would be currents if you are employed in the middle of a harbor for, for some kind of salvage of an anchor or for cleaning the seaweed uh, underwater. So you have to be really physically fit uh, for the for the purpose or for the mission and uh, he would be contracted by either a company uh, so there was a number of private company uh, companies that were in existence in the UK uh, for um, uh, that were be hired by either the government or by uh, private entities um, uh, for certain uh, type of underwater work uh, so this guy, um, who was contracted for the Royal Navy, uh, just to maintain one of the boats, he would go in the morning, report to the um, to the dockmaster, and then he would he wouldn't have his own gear. He wouldn't own his own gear. Uh, this gear would uh, have to be provided to him either by the Royal Navy or by the headmaster contractor or whoever owned the company. So he would go and take his gear uh, or the gear that he used to uh, work with. And then he goes and report to um, the, uh, um, the, the team leader who oversee uh, the work of the divers. Because uh, at one time you, would, you might have up to 10 divers around the same ship underwater uh, doing exactly the same thing. There was have to be some kind of uh, uh, communication between the teams uh, and between the uh, divers underwater and the operator uh, on the top side. Uh, so, huh. how does that work? So that 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 would appear um, um, again in the. I think it was in the late nineteenth uh, century, but I'm not sure. Uh, about this, uh, it would work because you have the the hose coming down, and then another hose uh, 
uh, going topside, the other way, going from the helmet uh, to a kind of an early uh, dictaphone uh, 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 or wired phone, not electronic, but through the air. Um, oh, so wow. they will use the airwaves uh, in the hose uh, to transmit the voices. So it would be like if you are uh, talking in a cone uh, or, or a metal cone, uh, some kind of a metal cone that amplifies the, um, the sound. And the receiver would be another cone in the other, in, on the top side. Uh, where the uh, team leader would give advice or uh, make sure that everything is okay down there and, and um, so on. Yeah, oh, that is interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know in modern times that scuba divers use a certain amount of, you know, a, a sign language, you know, communication yeah. symbols and, and things like that. So I, I would imagine that the workers themselves could have done that, but uh, wow. And so these people really must have felt like they were pioneers, like they were in space, the, you know, the equivalent of it, working underwater like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy, an easy job uh, to, to be diving underwater. Uh, actually staying in the water, in the freezing water, in, in like four to 10 degrees uh, Celsius, it would be really hard work to do. And how would divers have found this kind of work? So it, it, it might have been uh, either advertised by the company, uh, they would have uh, some kind of a call for uh, people who, who are fit and can dive, and, or people would, would really uh, have seen these people doing this kind of work when they were younger, and they decided, oh, when I grow up, I want to be like this man. Yeah, so they hang around the dock and kind of pick it up that way. Were there specialist roles that different divers played? Do you know? Um, I would say yes. Uh, they might have a specialty underwater. So uh, like what we have now today in the industry of uh, commercial divers. So we have people who are specialized in welding underwater, for example. Ah, um, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and other people who are specialized in, in fitting of uh, underwater rigs or some kind of piping. So people would have, but, but eventually they will learn this kind of methodology while they are being trained. Uh, but I think in the old days, um, the divers would, uh, would be uh, like a, a jack of all trades. So they would have to to know how to do everything. Yeah, and you you mentioned obviously physical fitness um, would have been a prerequisite to succeed in this job. Um, but what what other kind of mindset do you think a person would need to bring to this to be a successful early diver? Time management, because you you would really need to be on time at the site to do this certain work. Just go in do your part and make sure that uh, you do the exact thing that is being told from you. So you, you, uh, the, the, the team leader will tell you to do this part 
So you would have to uh, focus and do this part because some people would lack the discipline and uh, the focus in this kind of work. And this creates uh, either bad work or uh, accidents also. Yeah, I was going to say dead divers if they don't get the work done before the air exactly. runs out. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a big problem, yes. Um, and also making sure that you, they, they are aware about uh, their surroundings because uh, they might trip uh, with this heavy helmet on their heads. Uh, so it would be really hard to uh, stand up again. Um, so there is a lot of uh, kinds of things that they need to, to be aware of while they are underwater. So they have to be alerted at all times. Do you think that some kind of camaraderie or a, a sense of identity would have emerged among these divers? For sure there were. Uh, uh, it's, it's like any other profession in the world, uh, especially back in the, in the old times or the old days, uh, where there would be uh, maybe bars for fishermen and bars for shipwrights and also I, I might argue that there would be bars for divers or navy divers. Uh, so yeah, definitely they would have this sense of um, brotherhood or uh, some kind of a, a bond. Obviously they were working in groups because they're doing mm -hmm. a big task, like cleaning the hull of a ship is not a, a yeah. one man gig. Um, also for safety purposes, I would imagine that normally groups rather than individuals would have been sent down. Um, but yet this idea of, uh, you know, you're underwater, you're in this equipment which kind of isolates you. And yet you're so dependent on your fellow divers. It, it just must've been a really interesting dynamic yeah, because uh, normally back in the day, the divers would go down solo. They would have the, their designated space that they need to finish. Uh, but they really depend on the people who are on the top side, making sure that everything is in working condition, making sure that the air supplies go, uh, sufficient air supplies go down to the helmet, and making sure the equipments are being kept uh, in a working order. How do you think these divers might have been viewed by those outside the profession? You know, so other people who worked uh, near the water on the waterfront and just sort of the community at large. It could be, uh, they could be viewed as um, like kind of not heroes, but people who are doing really hard work. Um, staying underwater in the freezing cold so people would be uh, in their jackets really heavy jackets and uh, and shivering and drinking tea and these people are underwater working as of the community at large I'm not sure how they would they would view the divers but if I was a a, a small kid back in the day and I would see this diver coming up from the water with this uh, brass uh, helmet and this weird shaped uh, suit, I would really like to know more about it. And uh, he would be my, 
for me, for my, for me personally, it would be my dream job to grow up and do the same, exact the same thing that this man had done. Oh yeah, it would have been seriously um, aspirational. Yeah. How did people learn how to dive in this time? There would be either who are self-taught kind of uh, people uh, who would go and uh, and see how others were doing this kind of work, or people who would uh, decide to in, to be enlisted in a in the navy, and then they decide to to go through the the rigorous training of uh, being a navy diving officer uh, uh, back in the late eighteen hundreds and the early uh, 1900s. You know, we've talked about these early divers and, and the technology and the advances and the risks and all of that. So, uh, you know, it, it'd be very interesting to hear a little bit about the modern profession of scuba, how it has changed from these early days, um, and why it really modernized in a certain way, as I think you told me, in the 1940s? Yeah, so, so basically in the 1942, um, an, a French engineer and a French Navy officer uh, co-invented the, uh, an autonomous, the first uh, working autonomous diving suit, um, which we used to call the aqua lung or the underwater lung, basically. Uh, so a lot of uh, trials have happened uh, before their days in the uh, uh, 19th century uh, trying to have this kind of autonomous diving suit that is not connected to the surface in any way but they the the all these exper experiments failed e either uh, for technical uh, uh, things or uh, for the unaware uh, diver who who is not familiar with uh, the problems of um, uh, uh, breathing uh, compressed uh, air uh, in the diving. And this is um, the, 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 the new co-invention in the 1942. Um, uh, the two guys, uh, Jacques Cousteau and uh, Emile Gagnon. Oh, Gass I've heard Gass of Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's very famous. He's TV diver. <laughs> yes. He, he, he is a TV diver, and uh, it's known that he is the one who had this idea of the aqualung. And um, in simple terms, the aqualung was the um, uh, kind of uh, a cylinder that kept um, a compressed air, an amount of compressed air inside, it, inside of it, and then uh, uh, some kind of a diving regulator uh, that the diver could um, get air from this cylinder on demand. So every time the diver would breathe in, the regulator would, would release fresh air from the tank into the diver's lungs. And so this is, this is very different from the pipe, right? So this is, this is what we think about scuba diving today. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is the actual uh, scuba diving. So... Uh, scuba diving stands for self-contained underwater breathing uh, apparatus and hence comes the scuba. And so what drove the development of this scuba equipment, this aqualung self-contained 
um, you know, did the work and the requirements of the underwater workplace encourage this evolution from the surface supplied? Or did the development of this scuba technology change the way that that diving was pursued as a career? The, the way that they developed this, uh, the aqualung, uh, have made a, a, a great leap in the industry of diving. So uh, divers are no longer bounded by uh, this limited range of dive, of, of uh, limited movement of dive. Now they can float underwater if they please. They no longer have to walk underwater to get to their um, uh, designated places. Um, and also, so the freedom of mobility, uh, it, it is what drove this kind of evolution uh, of uh, the new scuba diving equipment or the aqualung. Was there something going on in the 1940s that encouraged this particularly? I mean, there's something that immediately pops to my mind, but I don't want to say, I don't want to put ideas into your mouth. No, I'm, I'm not sure, but it might have been the Second World War. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, how can you, be, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, you know that all of our, uh, most of our technological advances were at the beginning military uh, driven uh, technology and then it was uh, then being used by civilians but in the in terms of the aqualung um, it was made by yes a navy officer but it was made available to the audience back in the 40s not just the uh, the navy made available to whom to other professions that would benefit from the ability to scuba dive or just avocationally? Yeah, it was, it was actually for everyone. So whoever want to uh, dive deep and explore the underwater world and the freedom of um, diving and swimming with the fish, exploring corals and things like that. And this is where um, uh, recreational diving appeared um, uh, when uh, the aqualung was uh, invented. Yeah, and and also it opened the way to a form of archaeology that I know you practice, underwater archaeology. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your own experience as a diver and how it informs your own work. Yeah, so so basically underwater archaeology appeared around 10 years after the aqualung invention um, and it was done by um, like terrestrial archaeologists who happened to learn how to dive using the aqualung or the scuba gear and then they decide to go oh let's go and uh, explore the underwater world and uh, um, try to understand how the ancient people would live uh, so uh, for example, in Alexandria, people would go uh, like one of the pioneers, the diving pioneers in, in, in Egyptian diving pioneers, uh, Kamil Abu Sadat in the 50s. Um, he was the first one to report about the underwater uh, statues and the underwater artifacts that was found in Alexandria in the Eastern Harbor. Um, so from that, the exploration of the underwater uh, of the underwater world uh, became more famous, and uh, that led to eventually 
in 2008 uh, for the establishing of the center where I learned how to dive in 2009. So I started diving um, uh, in Alexandria in 2009 and since then I've been diving in different places doing different underwater work, either shallow uh, diving, uh, even using just snorkel, uh, all the way to deep diving where uh, where I was exploring underwater shipwrecks in the Red Sea um, under 32 uh, to 35 meters of depth of water. Wow. And why is this kind of work important to you? And, and what would you want to share with others about it? So actually we have, our planet is made of, 70% of water. So actually there is more underwater than on the surface. And oh, when you put it that way, I mean, I know that that's true, but I have to say, I don't think about it very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and actually growing up in Alexandria, for example, or in Egypt in general, um, um, you would find a lot of, of artifacts and uh, archaeological sites that are buried under, under the sand and in the case of Alexandria, are buried under the water because ancient Alexandria was a little bit um, higher than modern than modern Alexandria. So now it lies under uh, eight meters of depth under the water. Um, so um, the idea of exploring this kind of uh, lost heritage uh, was the main uh, driving. Um, idea for me it's kind of I'm trying to because I was lucky that I can dive um, which is actually in the world why wide it's it's less than two percent of the world population can go and dive now um, so uh, I'm privileged to be part of this community and uh, what drives me is the way of trying to communicate these finds and uh, what we learn from underwater world uh, to the public in general. Yeah, tell us if you could a little bit more about that. You know, what, what's been the most sort of incredible insight or discovery you've had as a result of, of being an archeologist who works underwater? Yeah, so, so basically one, um, we've been working on that side Western of Alexandria. So it's like 200 kilometers away from Alexandria, and it's uh, it's the summer camp of our university, Alexandria University. So we would go swimming, and one one of the days we found some pottery underwater, um, and actually these pottery are the remains of uh, a number of shipwrecks uh, that used to anchor around the bay uh, where the camp still exists until today, because there is access to fresh water. Uh, ah, in this okay. bay, uh, so so actually this this was known uh, from ancient times the bay itself because there was an access to fresh water um, and then a professor in the seventies uh, wrote uh, a memoir about the findings of uh, ceramic uh, potteries underwater and then it wasn't until two thousand fifteen or two thousand fourteen when we actually went there and started systematically surveying the whole bay, finding shipwrecks 
or cargoes of shipwrecks uh, all the way back to the Hellenistic world, so second century BC, um, um, and uh, we found some Roman uh, shipwrecks, and also all the way up to 19th century anchors and uh, and um, and finds and underwater finds. Wow! So I mean, it's it's really not unlike what you would find doing uh, an area survey above ground. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. Like because of the technology, you're able to do the same thing underwater. Yeah, it is amazing how new the subfields of um, underwater archaeology is, but how much it already is contributing to the discipline overall. Yeah. The, so so the, there there are a lot of modern discoveries. Uh, underwater in Egypt, for example, that is telling us more about um, mysteries of of ancient Egypt. Uh, for example, uh, latest discoveries in eastern of Alexandria in a bay called uh, Abu Ir Bay. Uh, underwater, um, uh, there are two cities underwater in the bay, uh, Tonis Heraklion and Canopus, and they are both of them are being uh, studied by a French team uh, in a collaboration with the Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt. And they just found uh, about 74 shipwrecks uh, from ancient wow, Egypt. Wow, 74. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and they are preserved because um, the, the good thing about, about salt water and mud, uh, it preserves organic material perfectly. Uh, for millennia, actually, for for yeah, not just uh, hundreds of years, but thousands of years. Um, yeah, and so you're, you're of, getting yeah. the preservation of stuff that would long ago have deteriorated in soil. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ziad, thank you so much for taking the time today to share all of your insights and experiences under the waves. And I have to say, listening to you talk, I feel like maybe if you had been my scuba instructor, I wouldn't have been an abject failure. <laughs> thank you, Karen. And thank you for the invitation. I've really had a wonderful time today. Thank you very much. The invention of scuba gear was a technological advance that emerged to meet specific military and commercial needs, to complete essential work in challenging maritime environments. But like so many other innovations, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus vastly expanded the kinds of work that we can do underwater, including the study of shipwrecks and historic sites that previously were inaccessible, caught in the astonishing 70% of the planet's surface which remains underwater. Equally important, scuba has become one of the most thrilling adventure pursuits that anyone with the desire and the means can harness to explore the deep, much like the natives do, if only temporarily. Thanks as always for listening, and we hope to see you back next week. Hey there, you can follow today's guest on Twitter and Instagram at Zayad underscore Morsi. For the spelling, check out the episode description. As always, we're on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. You can support the show and gain access to loads of bonus content at patreon.com slash working Please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Trust me, it really helps get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. 
Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.